So we've been looking at Jonah a couple of times. Um, we have really read through the first two chapters over the two previous times that I've, uh, I've been preaching. We're going to come in at the end of chapter two, the start of chapter three, in a little while. But just to recap, uh, Jonah, a prophet of God, uh, got asked to go to Nineveh by God, Nineveh, a great city, um, and preach against it. Uh, because of its uh, because of its wickedness, Jonah didn't want to do that. He wasn't interested in that job, and he decided he was going to run in the opposite direction. He ran down to a port um, and was looking to sail to Tarshish, as far away as he could, really, from God. Um, a storm came up on the sea. God wasn't going to allow him just to run away and escape like that. He was God's uh, man, and uh, God doesn't let us run away from Him, and God sent a storm to come upon the sea. Eventually, he got thrown into the sea by the sailors who were with him. Um, And he sinks down to the bottom of the ocean. At that point of desperation, that's the first time he decides he's going to come back to God. He's going to repent and he's going to turn his face back towards God. And he calls out for help. And at that point, God rescues him, sends a fish, great fish, who swallows him up. And then Jonah reflects on that in chapter 2. Um, as he's inside the belly of the fish, he reflects on what has happened to him uh, and he starts to commit himself back to God. He'd reached rock bottom, but now his attitude seems to have changed. Um, so we're going to look a little bit at, God's, at Jonah's response to God's grace on him in rescuing him. And then we're going to look again at, go, at God's response to Jonah. Um, We'd already seen that while he was at the bottom of the ocean, Jonah realized that he was wrong to turn and run away from God. And uh, as he reflects now more in that fish, we see a new resolve coming on Jonah. Let's read from verse 7 of chapter 2. Jonah's praying in the, in the fish. And he says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim To it, the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Okay, so Jonah's praying out, praying out in the belly of uh, the uh, the fish. Oh, I must say whale. (laughs) Jonah's praying out in the belly of the fish. All these children's stories you see come and they bombard you. It's a whale, it's a whale. It's a fish. Um... (laughs) Jonah's praying out in the belly of the fish. And he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's very true. It's very true. The the world promises so much. The world promises so much. So many different things that people put their hope in. Put a center of their life. Jonah's recognized they're worthless idols. People can chase after money and fame and Profile, position, power, 
Even family can become a worthless idol. Sport can become an idol. Loads of things which are good in and of themselves, many of them. They can become idols. They can become things which take the place of God. And if we cling on to those, if we put those above God, if we prioritize those in their life, oh, well, let's, let's just move things around. God can go here. It's all right. We'll, we'll make things fit. No, we're clinging on to idols that are worthless. We forfeit the grace of God, which could be on our life. If we keep on doing that, we'll, we may never know God's wonderful love. So many people are, are, are proud. So many people want to live life their own way. And uh, they miss out. They'll miss out on the grace of God, which could be on their lives. Never knowing God's wonderful love expressed through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the new life that can come being filled with the Holy Spirit. Jonah's recognized that. And then he goes on and he says, but I, but I with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's fantastic that Jonah has realized the error of his ways, really. He's realized that he's in his turn from his rebellion against God. Um, but there's something in this passage that as I read it, and I guess you can read it in different ways. We don't know quite the tone that Jonah was praying this prayer with. But there's something about this that makes me think, oh, Jonah, Jonah, are you, are you kind of just being a little bit too confident in yourself now? Are you, are you kind of dismissing others? I mean, this is a man who just a little while ago was sleeping on a boat, trying to head as far away from God as he could. I mean, it was the sailors on the boat who first recognized and said to Jonah, look, you need to pray. You need to pray to your God. And certainly when they found out who Jonah's God was, they were saying, look, what have you done? They were, they were fearful of God. And um, they prayed out to God, oh, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Okay, they had lots of other idols. They had lots of other gods, but they had seen something. They'd seen that the God, Jonah's God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, was a fearsome God. And they had turned to him. And, and actually, after they'd thrown Jonah into the sea, um, they turned to God. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord. Jonah wouldn't have known that. He would, by that point, have been sinking down. So maybe he, maybe Jonah's remembering back to the sailors. And he's thinking, oh, those sailors, those pagan sailors, they're clinging to worthless idols. Ah, they, they're forfeiting the grace that could have been theirs. But I, I, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you, God. All these sailors have turned to God. And Jonah having been rebellious against God, is now saying, no, but it's, I'm going to do this now. It's all going to be okay, God. I'm, I'm yours. I'm your man. I will make good my vow. By the, you know, we only need to read on a couple of chapters. We only need to read on to the start of, of chapter 4 to find out that Jonah's in a mess again. You know, Jonah became was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to God, oh, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and compassionate, abounding in anger. Uh, uh, sorry, abounding in love, slow to anger. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. 
Well, he's not in a great place again by then, start of chapter 4. He's so up and down. Why is he angry? Oh, because God's not done what, he's, what he said he would do. God said he was going to destroy Nineveh. Jonah kind of thinks, oh, I know you're not going to. And Jonah's cross with God and he's in a, he's in a mood again. So he's, he's like in a terrible place in chapter 1 and then he gets rescued by the fish. Oh, God, I'm going to do whatever you say. I'm your man now. Then chapter 4, oh, no, it's terrible again. I mean, it gets, it gets even more laughable. In, in chapter 4, he goes and makes a shelter, um, and, uh, and, and God provides a vine to, to grow over his head, and, and Jonah's really happy. Oh, great, I'm in a good mood again. Oh, God's a good God. He's made this vine. Fantastic. Then God sends a little worm to eat the vine up, and then Jonah's like, oh, no, I'm hot now. Oh, it's all terrible again. God, man, this, so, this man is so up and down, up and down, depending on what the circumstances are in his life. He's, there's no consistency in him at all. And he's going from this despair, oh, I might as well die now, to saying, oh, God, I'll do anything for you. You know, I'll serve you again. Very easy to forget this, uh, the grace of God on our lives when circumstances change. We, we can all be like Jonas. We can all be like Jonas. We can meet with God on a Sunday and perhaps respond to the message, perhaps God's met with us in the worship. Maybe we've been healed of something. Oh, God, oh, fantastic. You're so wonderful, God. You know, you're so wonderful. We praise you. Oh, I'll always be serving you, God. And then by Monday morning, something's gone wrong. It could be something trivial. We can't find the car keys. Kids are being sick. You know, we've got a headache. Just something trivial and minor. Oh, God's against me. Oh, it's all terrible. My life's awful. Where does all this come from? We can be so victim to circumstances. God seems far off suddenly in our life. Our motivations back down to zero. We can just be like Jonah. He, he reminds me a little bit of Peter. Jonah remind, reminds me of Peter in the New Testament. Peter in Matthew chapter 26. And Peter's just someone who... Again, he just responds to the moment. He's a guy who just responds to whatever's, whatever's happening. So in Matthew 26 and verse 33, uh, this is just before Jesus dies. And uh, he says, you know, this very night, in, in verse 31, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the, flock will, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus is warning. You know, you're all going to be scattered. You're all going to fall away on account of me. It's quite a sobering thing to hear from, from Jesus. But Peter's like, even if I, even if it all fall away on account of you, I never will. Oh, he's full of it. No, oh, I'm confident in myself. Oh, these guys, they're all flaky and weak and, no, no, I'm the big man here. I'm the strong guy. I'm not going to fall away. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Never mind, you'll never fall away. Three times you're going to disown me. And we'll come back to look at Peter a little bit later on. Jesus knew the reality of Peter's heart. Of Peter's life, his frailty. I mean, Peter was sincere. He sincerely declared what he intended to do. He wasn't lying. 
And Jonah isn't lying when he says, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve you, God. He's genuine. He says it genuinely. He's just not aware of his own heart. He's, he's just fooling himself. He's deceiving himself. So was Peter. We can easily make bold assertions in the moment of God's grace when things are going well, which, which maybe just don't stand the test of time. You probably only need to think back in your own life about times when you have said, I'm going to do this for you, God. And actually, you've, you've struggled to do it, or maybe you've, you've not done it. And we see it a lot in Christian life. With young people, you can see it a lot. Sincere praise of God at New Day and events like that. You know, when there's lots of other Christians, other young people around them, all declaring the same thing. Oh, God, I'll never be ashamed of you. We'll go to the nations. We will proclaim your truth. You know, all these things. We will do this. We will do that. We will do the other. Easy to say. What happens when the rubber hits the road? What happens when they're back in their schools, in their colleges, in their families who are unbelieving? We can easily do it. Even in songs that we've been singing, even this morning, even this, and, and wonderful songs of God, of praise that we've been singing this morning. We've, we've, we've just got to be careful with some of the things that we're singing. My heart will sing no other name. It's a sincere intention. Is that true? Hope so. We hope so. But I, I thought Liam's prayer uh, and, and, and the passage that he read was fantastic. And he prayed out he, something along the lines of, he said, Oh God, I know that nothing good lives in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. My life is lived by faith in the Son of God. He's he was praying, I'm putting my, I, I'm aware of myself. I'm aware of my frailties. I'm aware of my sinfulness. I have good intentions. But I'm not confident in myself. I can't be confident that I'll do what I say I want to do. But actually, my, life, my life's lived by faith in the Son of God. It's him I'm confident in. It's him I'm putting my trust in. Jonah makes promises and vows and, you know, what was it that Jonah had vowed anyway? He says, what I have vowed, I will make good. What, what was it he'd promised? What was it he'd vowed to do? Well, probably uh, the vow he's referring to was to speak on God's behalf, to be a prophet, to his job really, to say God's words to people. Um, up until now, remember, he'd been proclaiming God's words within Israel within the country where he was living. And in fact, as we saw a few weeks ago, the words um, which that we, the ones we know that he proclaimed um, was good news. He prophesied that uh, God was going to extend Israel's borders to make their land greater. Um, and that, that was what happened. And so it was a, he was a kind of good news prophet. Maybe he was very popular at the time. He hadn't realized that his next job that God was going to ask him to do was to do something totally different. To go into Nineveh, this great city, sinful city, to not just preach from Israel, but to go into Nineveh and preach against it. But he'd made a vow. He'd promised he would do it. He'd promised he would speak on God's behalf. But he didn't really realize what that was going to mean. He didn't realize what his vow would entail. Oh God, yeah, I promised I would do it, but I didn't realize it would mean this. 
I didn't realize that was the job you were going to ask me to do. Now, good on Jonah. He, he does it here, doesn't he? He, he? he says, look, what I have vowed, I will make good. And he does. He goes to Nineveh. Good. But, but we can do that too. We can, we can make vows before God. And we don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't know what it is that God is going to set before us. We, do, we just need to be careful before quickly making vows to God. Quickly saying and declaring, this is what I'm going to do. For example, a few passages to just give us sober thoughts. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we'll read from verse 21. Um, says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. So God's saying here, just be careful. If you're going to make a promise to God, if you're going to promise God that you will do something, make sure you do it. He said, you know, if you don't do it and you don't promise to do it, well, that's fair enough. You know, you're not guilty then. But if you've promised to do something and you don't, then you're guilty. Um, Ecclesiastes uh, it says something similar, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, Oh, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Let's be careful before we make promises to God. You know, we can be hasty in it. Oh, God, I'm in a real mess. If you get me out of this mess, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Oh, I'll always follow you. I'll tell you what, I'll give you, um, I'll give you, I will make sure you get 20% of my, my money. I'll give you that. That's what I'll do. Just be careful. If you make a vow, you need to do it. I think, oh, that, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, Ananias and Sapphira made a vow to give all the money that they'd, they'd got from the selling of a property to God in Acts chapter 5. And they didn't fulfill it. They didn't have to make that promise. They could have given what they wanted. They could have given nothing. But they said, no, we're giving you this. And then they kept some back. And God killed them for it. This is in the New Testament. God isn't mocked. If you make a vow, be certain to do it. Be careful with things like, like pledges for money. Oh, oh you know, there's an, there's a, there's an offer, offering um, at, at something like North or the weekend away. Yeah, the weekend away. People, oh, I haven't got my checkbook. Oh, I'll, I'll write a little note. I promise I will give so much money. That's a promise to God. Have you fulfilled it? If you made that promise, you need to do it quickly. The Bible says. It's not, oh, well, I didn't realize quite what my bank account was. Don't say to God it was a mistake. You've promised it to God. Make sure you do it. You didn't have to promise it. 
You didn't have to promise it. You could have, you could have not written anything down and come back and thought, right, well, I will give this or I won't. You promise, you have to do it. We don't know what the future will bring. But keeping our vows to God is so important. I I won't go into detail on it, but you you may remember the guy, the judge uh, called Jephthah in Judges 11.30. He was out in battle. He was out in battle and, uh, and, and the spirit of God comes on him, which kind of should be enough. But he, he then, he then says, Oh God, if you give me victory in this battle, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. And God gives him victory. And then he goes home and the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter. What? Oh, I didn't realize it was going to be my daughter. No, I hadn't realized when I made that promise. Now, he actually didn't say that. He, and, and he would have known that God hated human sacrifice. It talks about how God hates human sacrifice in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse, verse 31. And obviously it's abhorrent. But he, he actually realizes his vow to God is more important. And so he, he kills his daughter. He sacrifices his daughter. He says, I have to do it. And Jephthah is named in Hebrews 11 among the list, the list of people of faith. Jephthah's there. You think the guy killed his daughter? The, the guy made a stupid vow. Why did he do that? He's named among the people of faith. Because actually he, he kept what he said he would do. This is important stuff to God. Vows are not to be taken lightly. I guess most of us at some point in our lives will consider getting married. Maybe. And that's a huge decision to make because you're making vows you're making promises before god and before each other and making those vows isn't something to go into lightly um i'm aware we've got a wedding coming up next week so this (laughs) this is going to be fairly pertinent for those two but anyway here we are but let's have a look at some of the vows that will be made um you know x I'll, i'll call them x and y X, will you take Y as your wife to live together in marriage according to God's law? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, remain faithful to her as long as you both live? I mean, those words can kind of trip off the tongue. Oh, yeah, I've heard all that before. What are we promising here? When we say, yeah, I will, you're promising to live together to love, comfort, honor, keep in sickness and in health, forsaking everyone else, remaining faithful. And then other, other vows. I call upon these persons here present to witness that I, X, do take thee, Y, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to endeavor to love you as Christ loved the church, And that's always to endeavor because we're never going to be able to achieve that. And gave himself up for her until death parts us. This is my solemn covenant with you. It's a solemn covenant. I mean, weddings are great times, aren't they? They're fantastic. They're times to celebrate. They're joyful times. But these vows that that are made, they're not a time for, for jollity. They're not a time for light-heartedness. These vows shouldn't be spoken to each other kind of in a jokey way. 
or, or even grinning at each other, sort of lost in wonder at the beauty of your, your bride. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Of course I will. Your bride won't always look like that. <laughs> she won't. And you certainly won't. <laughs> You'll start to get a pot belly soon enough. <laughs> things will change. We, we're, not, we're not going, of course, I, I'll always do that. Because look at you, you're beautiful. Yeah, of course they're beautiful. But, but life changes. You don't know what's going to come up. And these are solemn vows. They're not times for jokes. They're not times to be concerned, oh, you know, is the photographer getting a good picture of me while I'm saying my vows? Actually, that's why we don't, we say we don't want photos at that point. We don't want photos because these are solemn vows. We don't want to be distracted by things. They're solemn vows being made to each other before God and everyone there. And if we're making them, we need to feel the weight of them. Because you know what? God expects us to keep them. Uh, Now, it may well be if you're going to get married or you're not married yet, you might be thinking, oh, come on, Mark, lighten up. It's not that bad. It'll be okay. Everything's going to be okay, surely. Let me tell you in all seriousness, it won't all be okay. It just won't. No one knows what life is going to bring, but it won't all be better, richer, and in health. It won't. The worse will come. The poorer may well come, and the sickness will come. And, and the worse, for better or for worse, the worse won't just be sickness or lack of finance. It, it will just be worse in terms of your relationship, in terms of the difficulties that you have. You will have times in your relationship when it is hard. You will have times in your relationship where you probably will think, you know, did I really make a good decision here? I don't know. You might consider those things you, because that's where the rubber hits the road and you, and you have to make a decision. Because in society, increasingly, marriage is seen as something which only lasts when things are good. It only lasts when things are, are better or in health or, 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 you know, for richer. And then it ends when they're not. And so you will be faced with this decision. Do I carry on with this? Are you going to make a decision and say, no, what I have vowed, I will make good. Jonah makes that decision. Now, he, he's kind of all over the place, but he's, he's making that decision. Like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, it's no good saying, oh, my vow was a mistake. But it was your vow. You made it. You think, oh, well, yeah, surely there are exceptions. Yeah, okay, the Bible does give exceptions, and I'm not... I'm not going to go into all the teaching on divorce. But we can be so tempted to try and fit everything in. Oh, that, well, that fits my situation. Oh, that, that's okay then. No, look, and also, look, I'm not wanting to heap condemnation on people who, who, who have gone through a divorce. And, and they'll know it's pain. I, I'm really actually coming at people who are at the other side of it. When there's a couple, especially when there's a couple who are madly in love and can't imagine that anything could possibly go wrong with their relationship. Just just take some time and sober thought as to what you're committing yourself to. Let's not lose sight on what we're promising. Hopefully there still will be a wedding next week. 
I really hope so. <laughs> He's looking okay. <laughs> but we need to take these things seriously. There may be times when, like Jonah, we try to run away from what we have committed to do. And God wants to bring us back to that place of repenting. He won't let us go. He wants to bring us back to that place of saying, what I have vowed, I will make good. And so Jonah, at the start of chapter 3, okay, he's okay for now. He's back where we were at the start of chapter 1. The start of chapter 1 in Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And this time, Jonah does go. This time, Jonah has responded to the grace of God on his life. He's rescued him from certain death. And his potentially over-enthusiastic response is to make good his vow. And he turns back to God for now. But it's, it's good enough for God. Because even though we are unreliable, God is totally reliable. Let's turn and look and see what God's response is. This is a bit more encouraging. Because we can look at ourselves and think that's very discouraging when we look at what we're like. Um, well, when we look at God, that is very encouraging. God is a God who acts. He may seem far off, but that's often because we've moved far away from him. When we come back to the root of the issue, when we start to turn back to God and move back to him, he runs to us. As soon as Jonah says, what I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord commands the fish and it vomits Jonah onto dry land. He's out of this situation he was in. He's out of the darkness and not knowing what's going to happen. And there he is. He's on dry land. Um, God acts. And we might find ourselves in positions where we can't see any way out. But at God's command, it can change overnight. And time and again, we see in God's word, time and again, we see where God acts, where it looks as though there's no way out. The Israelites are hemmed in by the Egyptian army and the Red Sea at the other side. The army are coming after them and there's the Red Sea. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Everything's, you know, going to fall apart. We're going to be killed. And at God's command, the sea parts and they go through and then the sea closes back in again on the Egyptians. Joshua and his army facing the vast city of Jericho, the great walls, and they're walking around. How are we going to do this? But at God's command, the walls fall. Paul and Silas, they're in prison and praising God. Suddenly, there's an earthquake. The prison walls come down. God acts. Everything changes. God can act in our situation, whatever it is. However, however much we're thinking, I just cannot see a way that this is going to change ever. He can change our job situation. He can change our family situation. He can change our health. He can change our finances. He can do it in an instant. Nothing can resist the word of God. And he's so gracious. God is so gracious. He always gives us far more than we deserve. And again, we see it time and time again in God's word. For example, Abraham. Abraham, he's, he's received the promises of God. You're going you're gonna to have a, your descendants will be vaster than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. You know, you, Sarah will have a son. Okay. 
Abraham's trying to work it out. Oh, I can't see it happening. She's old. And we've been waiting ages. Even after the promise, we've been waiting ages. Oh, maybe, maybe I'll do it another way. Well, actually, what about Hagar? Okay, I'll have a child with Hagar. And, and maybe God will work out his promises that way. No. He messes up big time. He doesn't wait. But yet God still graciously does give Sarah a son. God, God doesn't say, oh, you're obviously the wrong man. Why did I choose you? I just should have chosen someone else. No, Abraham was the man. And Sarah still does have the son of promise. Moses, another man of God. Another man God has chosen. Yet he messes up. He kills an Egyptian. He ends up 40 years in the wilderness. But 40 years later, God brings him back. And Moses is the man to deliver his people out of Egypt, as he said he would be. David, King David, great king, man after God's own heart. But he commits adultery. And worse than that, the husband of the guy, of the woman he's committed adultery with, he, um, he kills. He has killed. But then he's confronted with it. And he repents. He says, oh, I have sinned. He turns to God. God doesn't write him off. He's still God's man. He's still God's king. And Peter. We've already just touched on Peter. We've already looked at how Peter was so confident in himself. So, oh, I'm the man. These guys, forget them. I'm your man, Jesus. I'll never leave you. Could he have had a worse day after that? Could he have had a worse evening? How many times does he mess up that evening? First of all, Jesus calls him out, along with a couple of others, come out, come and pray with me. You know, okay, Peter, you're the man, come come and pray with me. My heart is full of sorrow. Oh, Peter falls asleep. Jesus goes back, oh, could you not even stay awake? Look, just wake up, come on, pray with me. Goes off and prays again. Comes back, Peter's asleep again. Rebuked a second time. Could you not even pray for one hour? And Judas comes up. Judas comes up, kisses Jesus on the cheek. The guards arrest him. Peter's grabs a sword, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus turns to him, rebukes him a third time. That is not the way. That is not how we do it. Jesus heals the guy. Peter's just left crushed. And then obviously the time when he goes into the courtyard. And he said, oh, Peter, weren't you, aren't you one of his followers? No, not me. Not me. Three times. Even to the point where he's swearing at, at, at the people who are asking him. No, it's not me. I don't know him. I've never known him. And the cock crows. I mean, only a few hours earlier, he was like, I'll never desert you. He's just messed up big time. That must have been the worst few hours of his life. Can you imagine how bad he is feeling? And Jesus is crucified. And Peter just goes away and he goes back with the other disciples. What's going on inside of him? He was so confident in himself. 
He was so sure that he would stand by him. He just didn't know his own heart. Jesus did. He's messed everything up. Oh. And then Jesus is marvelously resurrected. He's raised from the dead. And Peter can't believe it, but inside he's still got to be feeling, but oh, Jesus isn't going to want me. He's not going to want me. There's no way. There's no way. And then that marvelous passage at the end of John's gospel in John 21. They, they come, they have food on the beach. And then Jesus turns to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you tr- truly love me more than these? Yes, he says, you know I love you. His heart must have been aching because he's thinking, oh God, I do love you. But I know what I've done. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was here because he's asked me a third time. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter gets reinstated. He doesn't get left by the wayside. Jesus doesn't look around and say, well, actually, you know, Philip, Philip has done all right, really. He's not done that badly. I'll have him. Philip, will you do that? No, he gets Simon. He gets Peter. And it's him who gets reinstated. The man who he'd said, on this rock, I will build my church. Plan's not changed. The plan's not changed. It's still Peter is the man. And as Debbie pointed out earlier when she brought that passage, in the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, the son realizes his mistake. He realizes that he's messed his life up big style. And he says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to, be, I'm going to just act as his, my father's servant. And the father sees him and he runs towards him. And he puts a fine robe on him and a ring on his finger. And he kills the fatted calf. And he celebrates with a party. And he's fully reinstated into the family. And that's, what, and that's what Jesus will do with us too. That's what God will do to us. We are so often like Jonah. So often we, we react to the circumstance. We think that we're going to serve God. We think we're going to do this, that and the other. And then circumstances change and we rebel against God and we get angry with God and we do other things and we just get depressed. But actually, at the moment of repentance, at the moment where we turn back to God, God graciously comes straight back to us and he forgives us because of, because of the wrath that's already been poured out on Jesus. And we can stand clean before God again. Even though God knows that no doubt we're going to mess up again. We, can, we stand before God clean, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end at us just standing forgiven. Oh, it's okay. We're okay with God now. That, that's good enough. And, and it is good enough in a way. That would be good enough. That is amazing. It's totally undeserved. We don't deserve to be forgiven. 
and cleansed by God and be able to stand before him. We don't deserve it. Jonah didn't deserve to be spewed up onto the beach. But but that's not all we get. That's not where God leaves it. Jonah didn't just get left on the beach to live out the rest of his life in regret at what he'd messed up with. He was brought straight back in. Okay, you're my man. You're my prophet, Jonah. You go to Nineveh. God God hadn't brought in a substitute. He'd not brought someone in off the benches who was going to do the job a bit better. And he doesn't do that with us too. We don't just stand before God forgiven but distant. Those who've messed up and, and failed and okay, we're brought back to a point. In the same way as the prodigal son, we are reinstated. Because we are part of God's family too. This son was part of God's family. He wasn't a hired servant. Neither are we. We're not God's hired servants. We are part of his family. He's adopted us. We see in Galatians 4 just the amazing truth of that. Galatians 4 and verse 5. It says, let's read from verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. The full rights. Because you are sons, God sends the Spirit of God into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. We've come into amazing inheritance in God. We're not treated as his servants. We're not treated at a distance. We are his sons. We will inherit all that Jesus will inherit. We have all the privileges of sonship. And God always holds out that hope for us. We are so undependable. But God is so totally dependable. And loving and gracious. And whatever circumstances we're facing in our lives, there's a way out through God. And it will mean humbling ourselves. And it will mean recognizing that we've gone our own way and we've, and we've written God off and we've disregarded him. And it will mean recognizing that salvation comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. And it will mean going back to our promises and our vows and, say, and saying, what I have vowed, I will make good. I will do that, God. I, I promise that and I'm going to do it. And, and, and I'm going to trust you that you will keep coming back and, and keep pouring out grace and love to me. And God will. He will. He will come and he will give us more than we ever hoped for. He will give us far more than we deserve. And far more than we ever hoped for. So let's pray.